Welcome to the Pro-Life Team Podcast. I am Jacob Barr, and I'm here with Father Frank Pavone, and we're going to be talking about the leaked draft of the Dobbs case from the Supreme Court. We're also going to be talking about how this is the 50th year, the 50th year of Roe, and how we are in the year of Jubilee, and what that means, what that means to God's people. So, Father Frank Provone, I am so excited to have you on here. Would you introduce yourself as if you were talking to a group of uh, pro-life friends and people who who are, who cherish uh, the unborn, along with moms and their and the and the young parents involved? Well, gladly. It's so good to be with you and with our audience. I uh, got involved in the pro-life movement as a high school student at 17 years old three years after Roe v. Wade uh, was issued. So it was 1976. Since then, the movement has been a big part of my life. I became a priest and then uh, 30 years ago, received permission uh, within the church to make fighting abortion my full-time ministry. So it's been 30 years of nonstop work with the great people in this movement as head of Priests for Life. And, and that name uh, tells us, first of all, we work with the clergy. People want to see their clergy teaching and preaching and leading on these issues. Uh, but it's for much more than priests. Priests for Life has become one of the largest pro-life organizations, and it's for everyone and anyone of any religious background who wants to do something to end abortion. Simple as that. We do educational work, broadcasting, lobbying, political work, helping pregnancy centers, helping those who have had abortions to find healing. In fact, we run one of the largest, the largest ministry for that, which is Rachel's Vineyard. And uh, we've developed a, a whole family of ministries, if you will, under this umbrella called Priests for Life. Uh, it is a, um, such a, an honor and a joy to do this work, as I'm sure so many of our listeners understand, by doing it themselves. And uh, that's in a nutshell, uh, what my life has been uh, over these years. Well, thank you so much for yeah devoting yourself to this very important part of God's will, part of yes. you know, this, this wonderful mission of helping those, uh, helping those with the least voice and the youngest of our society and while still being targeted by um, evil, essentially. It is evil. It's you could say it's the greatest evil because it's uh, you know it's bad enough if a human life is taken by an act of violence. What makes abortion even worse is that it's an act of violence that, in so many places, is no longer recognized as violence but is considered to be a right. So you add insult to injury. So oh, it was a right to do that. And then another level of the evil is. It's being carried out. It's bad enough if somebody kills somebody else, no matter who they are. But this is carried out within the family by mm -hmm. against their own children. So you have various levels, not to mention, furthermore, these are the most defenseless human beings in the world. And they are the greatest number. In other words, when you look at uh, what takes human life, nothing takes human life more than abortion. So all these different I see it as different layers of the evil compounding it, you yeah. know, on one thing upon another. So yeah, you use the right word that this is a major evil. Yeah. It's a, it's a compound layer of lies or false beliefs yes. Um, yes. that add up to being um, 
just yeah this the, the greatest evil because of just the, just the, the magnitude and the impact and the target being the weakest and most vulnerable and turning moms against children or parents against mm. their offspring mm. um when, when that should be the reverse it should be full of joy and and love and excitement but then to turn that right. on its head well, isn't that the most basic human relationship and really the, the, the core, the, the cell, if you will, of our society? I mean, if, if a relationship between a mother and her own child isn't secure, what other relationship is secure? In fact, when you think about it from a biblical point of view, God even uses this as an example of, you know, it's as if God is trying to think, what is the most extreme and unlikely example of people turning against one another? And he says in the prophet Isaiah, when he's trying to convince us of his love for us, says, can a mother forget her child, be without tenderness for the, the child of her womb? And then he goes on to say, even if she should forget, I will never forget you. So it's like God himself, mm. think of a better example of an unthinkable thing than that a mother would turn against her own child. And yet that's what we have happening with abortion. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and God is... He never gives up on us and he is um and it would, it would be really and it's really beautiful when a mom never gives up on her child oh that is really yes good. yes indeed and so many so many are indeed living that that heroic uh sacrifice right where they so many pressures would tempt them to walk away uh, abandon their responsibility, and yet they persevere, and they reach out, and they struggle, and they get the help they need, and they, they remain faithful. It's a beautiful thing to see. Yeah. So, so when it comes to this Dobbs case, and yes. the leaked draft, and, yes. and I, I'd like to try and start with the Supreme Court justices and their, and how they're being targeted and yeah. to be influenced what are your thoughts on you know what do you what are your thoughts on the supreme court justices in this scenario um you know with the, with people protesting in front of their in front of their homes well you know it's been the a threats year. they're probably receiving exactly well it's been a year now since the court announced the Dobbs case um it was may 17th of 2021 when we found out that the court had accepted this case. It actually took them a long time to accept it. So they were really thinking about it carefully and discussing it among themselves behind closed doors. I am sure that when it was announced, from the day it was announced in May a year ago, they have been under tremendous pressures, threats, intimidation, because the other side does not care about a protocol, decorum, respect. I always say you can't practice vice virtuously. If your conscience has been so seared that you can kill a baby, you don't care about anything else. You, you can, you'll break all kinds of other laws and protocols and norms of society. So I don't think that the current threats that we are seeing, the intimidation, which by the way is illegal to intimidate or pressure a justice by, by, by picketing in front of their homes. I mean, the right to picket in general is certainly legal, but to target a justice to influence one of their decision is actually against federal law. Um, and, uh, but we see that happening now. This is simply the manifestation at the present moment because of that leak 
uh, of, of a pressure intimidation that's been going on for a year already. So that is, first of all, to say that these justices are pretty strong. You know, they are not going to give in to public pressure. And as a matter of fact, Justice Alito even mentions in that draft document that, you know, we don't know what the public reaction is going to be, but no matter what it is, and he says it this way, it's interesting. It doesn't only say we will not let it influence our decision, but he says we do not have the authority to let it influence our decision. In other words, they are bound by an oath to uphold the Constitution. If public pressure is trying to get them to abandon the Constitution, they have no right to do that. They have no authority to do that. So they're saying it explicitly. And of course, the Chief Justice said explicitly when this came out uh, and when these protests started, he says, we will not be bullied. We will not be intimidated. I, I mean, these these are strong. If these, if these men and women weren't strong, they wouldn't have gotten on the, on the court in the first place. I don't think any of them on either side is going to change their mind about this decision uh, simply because of these protests. I think it does say a lot about the other side. Just think about this for a moment. They're always saying to us, well, Roe is the settled law of the land. I mean, most people agree with us. They, they would have us believe. They agree with us. You know, They won't want Roe to go away. They want abortion to be legal, et cetera, et cetera. These are their talking points all the time. Well, if they really believed that, what are they worried about? Why are they, why are they panicking and going frantic uh, in front of the Supreme Court, in front of the justices' homes, at churches, you know, why are they acting like the world is falling apart if they think everybody's with them? So the, the fact is they don't really believe that because the people aren't with them. But they've been able to get away with abortion on demand because they, they, they were handed it on a silver platter by Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade short-circuited the democratic lawmaking process that we have in this country, which is painstaking. It takes time. It's a lot of back and forth. You've got to lobby people. you got to elect them in the first place. you got to work with them. You've got to give and take. And, 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 and that's a mature process for mature Americans. These people for, that are for abortion, are, are they were handed this on a silver platter. They didn't have to go through the lawmaking process of persuasion and debate and, and lobbying. And therefore, when they see it slipping out of their hands, when they see that silver platter being now taken away from them, and the court is saying, be an adult, go over there, talk to your lawmakers, and persuade them that abortion on demand is a good idea, they don't know how to engage that process. And so what do they do? They react with a temper tantrum like a spoiled child who's being deprived of, of what he or she uh, 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 wanted. And, and, and that's, you know, that's what we're seeing unfold before our eyes. Yeah, that's a good description of like that, that bullyish, the bullyish kind of tactics that they've been trying to like that mob mentality. Or, right. Um, yeah. Uh, well, we yeah. So um, what, what I was talking with one of my friends recently, and he was thinking, with with the power being returned to the states, um, actually, one thing that he what you had mentioned in a previous video, you said more so than it going from the federal level to the state level, which it is. More importantly, it's going from the power is being re returned from the courts to the legislative body. Can you right. speak speak to that? Um, yes. Scenario. 
Yes, the Constitution, uh, in the first three articles of the Constitution established the three branches of government, and they're supposed to be co-equal. The first article deals with Congress, the second article deals with the executive branch, the president, and so forth, and the third deals with the courts. Now, the lawmaking, all lawmaking authority is vested in the Congress on the federal level, in the state legislatures on the state level. That's where you know, we have, for example, let's talk about Congress. In the House of Representatives, you've got these members being elected every two years. Now, that's a that's a short term. They get elected to Congress, but they're only going to serve for two years. And they got to get elected again. So in a sense, they're always in election mode. But we should see that as a good thing, because the reason our founders made the term so short is that it reminds them and it reminds us that they work for us. They're accountable to the people they represent. And therefore, the people they represent, if they don't like the way they're representing them, can vote them out of office. Now, notice how for a judge, judge on the federal level, it's exactly the opposite. They don't have to deal with elections at all. They get appointed, and if they're confirmed, they serve for life. Now, why is that so different? You got the uh, Congress being elected every two years, the judge or the justice serving for life. Well, because they're not supposed to be political. They're supposed to be independent. Their opinion on policies isn't supposed to matter because they're not making policy. They're simply judging whether a law in a particular case or controversy does or doesn't correspond to the Constitution because constitutional law is higher than statutory law and they have to judge if there's a conflict or not. That's it, they judge. They don't change the law. The, if they judge that a law is unconstitutional, they can communicate back to the lawmakers and say, hey, listen, you guys need to change that law before the state can enforce it because it's not constitutional. Okay, so they have just the power of judgment. What's happening here now with the abortion issue, what Roe v. Wade did was it took this issue and it gave, it took abortion and it gave it a special constitutional status. By saying it was a constitutional right, therefore it took it out of the legislative process because you can't legislate away constitutional rights. You can't do that. So again, because of what we just said, laws have to correspond to the constitution. So what they did was they took power away from, from you and me because we can't sit down and lobby a Supreme Court justice. We can't vote them out of office if they're going in the wrong direction. It's like, so so, so how do we change this? And the, the, the fact of the matter is we don't. And this has what's been, has frustrated the American people who care about this issue, uh, particularly on our side, because again, the other side was given everything it wanted by the court. And meanwhile, we're sitting here saying, well, wait a minute, this doesn't represent what I was told we were supposed to govern ourselves. This doesn't represent what we believe. So now what the Dobbs decision looks like it's about to do and what, 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 what pro-life groups and, and the state of Mississippi have asked the court to do is put this back in the hands of the lawmakers. The briefs in this case are beautiful. Hundreds of members of Congress authored a brief saying, reverse row and give us back the power to do our jobs when it comes to abortion, that is to make the law. Hundreds of state legislators signed on to a brief saying the same thing, give us back our job, let us do our work relating to abortion. And so the, the power is being returned 
from the judicial branch, which should have never usurped this power in the first place to make law, from the judicial branch is being transferred back to the legislative branch. And this has implications well beyond the abortion issue. It, it goes to the very understanding that we're supposed to have of the roles of these different branches of government. And I'm convinced we, we've lived so long with judicial activism, the courts making laws, that many Americans, I'm talking about good, sincere, patriotic people, have lost an understanding of the way it's really supposed to be. So this Dobbs case, if it goes the way we think it's going to go, can really help us across the board on many issues to get a balanced and accurate understanding of how the courts are supposed to work vis-a-vis -vis the, the legislatures. Mm. So, and yeah, so that's, that's an, um, yeah, so essentially if it just feels like um, that's another example of, well, the courts making essentially what looks to be like a law but yeah, right. it's supposed to be giving out a ruling over law, and and in that in the draft, it, it spoke about um, how the, the word abortion is not mentioned in the Constitution, and then it, right. they pulled it out of the right to privacy, which is also not in the Constitution. They pulled that right. from other areas, like maybe from yeah. here. But if that doesn't work, we got these two other options. And yeah, it was like they weren't even sure. They said, "Oh, this is in the Constitution, but well, yeah, it could be here, it could be there. We're not really sure, but it's there, but it's there." You know, it yeah. Was, so like the person that challenges us, we, we would like them to do the homework <laughs> of figuring yeah, it out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, there, there are rights. I mean, for example, you and I have the right to travel. I, I travel all the time on this mission. Everybody travels. Um, but the right to travel, you can't find that in the Constitution. Uh, we, you know, we have a right to raise our children. You know, that's not there. So there are certainly rights that are protected rights that are not explicitly named in the constitution. But in those cases, and, 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 and the opinion goes into this in quite a bit of detail, you can always find those things, those rights rooted in the history and tradition of the country. State laws, uh, um, uh, uh, constitutional decisions, court decisions, you can see it in the history of the country. So Justice Alito says, well, do we see in the history of the country a constitutional right to abortion? And he says, absolutely nowhere do we see that until Roe v. Wade came along in the mid 20th century. So it's like, where is this coming from? It's not in the text. It's not in the structure. It's not in the history and traditions of the country. It's nowhere. Now, like you said, the other side will say, well, you know, it derives from this or that. Some will say privacy. Others will say liberty. So the 14th Amendment says that the state may not take away our liberty. Okay, that sounds good. But what does liberty mean? It's easy to think liberty means whatever we want to do. And, uh, but, it, but you have to be very careful, and the courts have to be very careful, not to give it meanings that it, that it doesn't have. And this is what has happened over the years. Uh, there was a, a case in which the court had to reverse itself, where, where there was a, a famous case out of New York where an employer was having an employee work beyond the, uh, the state's uh, limit on the number of work hours. It's called the Lochner case. And the court said, oh, well, there's a liberty there, a freedom of contract. So they, they struck down the law that limited the work hour week to, to, to 60 hours. Well, some years later, the court had to reverse itself and say, well, wait a minute, we can't be finding this right to contract, which is nowhere in the Constitution, and make it just you know ignore the laws that are on the books in various states, whether it has to do with work hours or minimum wages or various other things 
that had come before the court. So this is a similar case because under that same 14th Amendment, under that same uh, provision for liberty, uh, the other side is saying, oh, well, there's a right to abortion there. And again, what Justice Alito in the Dobbs case is saying is, yeah, where? It's not there. And it's not consistent with our history. Not only is there no constitutional right to abortion in our history, but we see just the opposite. At the same time that the 14th Amendment was being adopted, the states were prohibiting abortion. Three quarters of them prohibited it throughout pregnancy and then more followed afterwards. So it doesn't make sense that a state at the same moment is passing vigorous laws prohibiting abortion throughout pregnancy and at the same time ratifying an amendment that purportedly allows abortion throughout pregnancy. Makes no sense. So uh, it's a very strong uh, historical argument in this particular uh, document. So yeah, so this one of my friends, uh, Jeremy, he was talking to me recently, and he was wondering um, if anything will really change when it comes to Roe versus Wade being overturned, and the mm -hmm. and the you know the the you know and it, it, essentially the law uh, or the governing law being returned to the states. How would you what what change could we you know what what are your thoughts on the change that comes from Roe versus yeah. Wade being overturned? Well, you know, as you said earlier, the, the reason that I'm, I'm careful about the, the, the phrase, it's returning it to the states, is because the battle has already been in the states. You know, that's how we got this case in the first place. Mississippi passed a law. And what you've seen happening over these 50 years since Roe v. Wade is that many states have passed many laws. So the work has been done. The conviction and will of the people has been expressed. Uh, the laws have been passed. What has happened, however, the court put a roadblock to the, to the enforcing of the laws. So you got plenty of laws on the books around the country uh, or tied up in court uh, that are, are protecting the unborn. And the court said, no, 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 you can't do it. You can't protect the babies before viability. And we can discuss that more. But that was the boundary line that the court put in the, um, in the way of these laws taking effect. So yes, there would be a very significant change, even without much work being done. In other words, if this ends up being the final decision, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey go away, um, some things will happen right away. Now, legislatures may have to take some, will have to take some, some formal action uh, to make this happen, but it's not like you've got to start from scratch because as I say, a lot of these laws have been made already and, um, now what will change is they will be allowed to go into effect. So Mississippi, if they drew the line at 15 weeks, now it'll actually go into effect and abortions will not be permitted beyond that point. Uh, similarly, a lot of other states with a lot of laws protecting babies before viability, now they go into effect. And then once that roadblock has been taken away, the um, many of these legislators will be motivated to pass new laws that protect these babies, knowing now that there's not a roadblock in the way. Because a lot of times, you know, and I've worked with these people over the years, you know, legislators will say, or even pro-life groups that work with the legislators, they'll say, well, you know, it would be great if we, if we pass this kind of a law in our state, because most of the people support it. But knowing that the court would strike it down, they didn't even, they didn't even try. Because they mm -hmm. say, well, waste our time and effort and money and whatnot. Now, some places they did try. And again, they pushed back against the courts 
And that's how we ended up having these cases. But a lot of them didn't even try. You take that roadblock away and people are going to be like, okay, now let's go. You know, now this is like phase two of the effort to protect the unborn. Ultimately, we have to protect all the babies in all the states. And ultimately, you know, the final goal is a constitutional amendment saying that, that, that these babies must be protected. But in order to get to that, you have to obviously take away this obstacle in the form of Roe v. Wade saying it's a constitutional right to an abortion. In other words, we've got to flip it to be just the opposite. Yeah, so, so Roe versus Wade, from what I, if I, if I memory serves me correctly, was January 22nd, 1973. Right. So we're currently 49 and a half years after mm-hmm. that date. And so we're in the 50th year. Like this yes. is, what are your thoughts on the year of Jubilee? Or right. what that might, how would you reflect on that idea? That's a powerful, powerful uh, reality that's happening in front of our eyes because in the scriptures, uh, God decreed that there should be a year of Jubilee every 50, 50 years, freedom, uh, remission of debts, forgiveness, uh, th- th- sort of hitting a restart button in a good yeah. Saying, okay, we're going to wipe the slate clean, everybody, because, you know, human nature demands that, that that happen every once in a while, because there's no way for us to completely clean up our mistakes or pay our debts. There's got to be built into the system of living in our world and in our society and in this frail human existence, a way to say, you know what, let's just start again. Let's forget about the debts of the past. This, in a year of Jubilee, I mean, we have to set the unborn free. And uh, this could be a big, a big, big step in doing exactly that. So it really is, uh, you know, a spiritual dimension of this whole thing that's unfolded yeah. uh, to say that, wow, this is going to happen just about exactly 50 years after. And when you think about the, you know, then because, because Dobbs will come down, let's say it comes down, I mean, it's going to be sometime in the next few weeks. Uh, It'll take the legislatures, you know, a few months at least, or they'll, you know, they'll, depending when they have their sessions, uh, it will be 50 years by the time these laws now start going into effect, as we were describing a moment ago. Yeah. Uh, interesting biblical uh, perspective. So I was talking with uh, Drill Godsey on a podcast, and we were trying to figure yes. out, like, you know, how, how, how um, precise is God on the 50th year? And he pointed out to me after the podcast that when a baby is born, that first 12 months is the first year of life. And then when they, on their first birthday, then they, they turn one and they start their second year. So we, we are in the 50th year. And I was just thinking while you were talking that the draft was written in February, which would have been in the first month of the 50th year. And so we're... And so right now we're currently 49 and a half, but this is the 50th year of life. And then the 50th will yeah. be at its completion on January 22nd of next year. So we're currently, yeah, about six months uh, and, and away. That's when, and that's when a lot of the state legislatures will be starting up again. Their new, yeah. the elections are in November and usually all these, these legislatures, including the U.S. Congress, begin at the beginning of January. There's another connection with the 50, which is the oral arguments. The oral arguments in the Dobbs case were held in the Supreme Court on December 1st. Do you know when the first oral arguments were uh, in Roe versus Wade? December 13th, 
1971. So it was almost to the day, 50 years, hmm. in the oral arguments in Roe and the oral arguments in Dobbs. Wow. Yeah, it just feels like God's got a lot of fingerprints because it, it just like the 50 year reset just has such a biblical um, spiritual layer to it. It does. It does. Um, so what is what is a post? Well, before I go to what what does a post row world look like? What was what are you what are your thoughts on what's going to happen in this transition stage that we're currently in where the draft being leaked, which is dangerous and unique and first a first time at some levels or first time many levels and and that's in the the decision of row like what is this what do you think this time span looks like while we're currently in this you know transition stage of you know the decision becoming um public and final and like what's this look like well it's it's first of all it's helpful to us to digest the decision, because even though this this leaked document is not the final official, I don't think the final official is going to be very far from it, which means that uh, we've had a chance now to really digest the argumentation in the document before it becomes official, so that when it does, we take a look at the decision, obviously, we say, hey, this is pretty much what we saw already, let's go with it. And we'll be better, the whole movement will be better equipped from day one to educate our fellow citizens about it. Um, number two, in this interim period, you know, we have to be um, speaking loudly in support of the justices, their safety and their protection from intimidation. Because it, the, the unfortunate thing, and one could easily understand how whoever the leaker was would see this as an opportunity to introduce this pressure and intimidation before they make their decision official. We've got to insist that this is not the way we operate in America. Uh, This is not the way our court system is designed. We need to defend an independent judiciary and independent means, like we were saying before, they have lifetime appointments for a reason. They don't face elections because they're not supposed to be facing political pressure. It's not supposed to be part of their equation. Um, And so this is a period of time that is unprecedented. Uh, And and like I say, I mean, the the other side does pressure the justices anyway. They would have been pressuring them and were pressuring them even absent the leak. But the leak intensifies all of this and unleashes more of this this notion that, oh, let's see if we can get one of them to change their mind. And we've got to be speaking strongly against against that during this 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 period of time. Um, But it's also a period of time where, uh, you know, I mean, it it was such a mixed mixed bag of emotions when this happened on, on May 2nd, because on the one hand, you're sort of insulted and um, distressed that the integrity of the court and its processes would be treated with such disrespect by, by this leaker. But then you look at the content of what was leaked and it's like jubilation. It's like, oh my goodness, it looks like they're gonna give us everything we ask for. And it, 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 it's, I, I must say as a, as a pro-life leader that been working for this uh, full-time for 30 years, you can't but jump for joy at the, at the expectation that this is about to become a reality. 
Um, so it's a strange, it's a strange little period of time that we have here, uh, and um, I, I hope that that these these. I mean, I don't think the process of the court should be rushed or short circuited in any way, but I hope they're almost done with their work <laughs> and get this decision out there and and put this um, strange period of intimidation to rest, and let's just deal with the actual decision. Yeah. It when I, when I first started praying for abortion to end and Roe versus Wade to be overturned, I don't know, maybe it was less than 20 years ago, but I, I honestly did not know. I was thinking my kids would see it someday or my right. grandkids. I, I, didn't, right. I didn't see a pathway for it to be overturned in my lifetime. But I'll tell you what, you're making a good point because, you know, uh, when I was, I mean, I've been speaking over all these decades on this issue, and there were, you know, there were times when it looked like, wow, we really have a, a clear path to doing this. And there were other times when it looked just the opposite. It's like, you know, we know it's going to happen someday, but we're certainly not on the track for that now. But I, but I, but I'll tell you, and, and my talks are all out there, you know, over these, over these decades, I always said to people, we will see the victory in our lifetime. And this is not, it wasn't because I saw uh, uh, things moving necessary in, in that direction every time politically or legislatively, like many periods of time, they were going just the opposite. But here's what I did see and what we all need to see. No lie can live forever. The truth of the pro-life position has always been advancing. Science has always been advancing. The ultrasound technology, the reality of the unborn child. Um, what else has also been advancing? The awareness of people that abortion hurts. One of our big uh, efforts is the Silent No More campaign, where those that have had abortions speak out and tell people how terrible it is. They also tell them about the healing and forgiveness that come in Jesus Christ and in the church. So those voices have consistently, since the time of Roe, gotten louder and louder. Researchers have constantly been developing without pause uh, the evidence, scientific evidence of the damage abortion does to women, to men, to relationships, to the family, physiological, psychological. All this evidence has been piling up. Um, what else has been happening? Young people have become more and more pro-life. So we see over these decades in the statistical a trending of, you know, what do people think of abortion? Well, young people have been more and more pro-life because they realized they were in the womb. And, and you know, it's a strange, uh, I don't know what it's like personally, but it's got to be a very, very strange uh, experience to realize one day, wait a minute, I wasn't protected. The law did not recognize me as a person. Roe v. Wade says the word person does not include the unborn. So if you were unborn at some point after Roe v. Wade, you realize I wasn't considered a person under the law. Oh my goodness. You know, that has a tremendous impact. So young people in speaking up for the unborn now in a very real way are speaking up for themselves. All of these dynamics that I've mentioned, the science, the culture, the experience, the pain, the research, just the truth of the pro-life position that has gone on unhindered. There's nothing the other side can do to stop that. They can try to hide it, you know, like with the research, pro-abortion publications won't publish it. Pro-abortion universities won't allow presentations. They'll do all sorts of tricks, but they can only do that for so long. 
you can't hide the truth forever. They said this in the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr. said it, no lie can live forever. So that's why I've always been confident along the way. I said to people, you mark my words, we will be celebrating the victory and, uh, and in our lifetime. Because then you look at big mistakes that the Supreme Court has changed in the past. One of the biggest ones, separate but equal, right? The segregation decision under uh, uh, called Plessy versus Ferguson. That was decided in 1896. The Supreme Court reversed itself on that point, recognizing that separate but equal wasn't really equal. It was harming uh, uh, people by separating them that way. But they didn't reverse it until 1954. That's 58 years. So I always said to people as we were, we were looking ahead, you know, someday Roe v. Wade is going to be reversed. I said to them, you know, uh, I said, just keep in mind, we are well within the historical window of time for the Supreme Court to reverse very, very erroneous decisions. Uh, not that there's any official window of time. It could theoretically be longer, but it took them 58 years to reverse the separate but equal. And now it looks like it's going to be just shy of 50 for the, uh, for the Roe v. Wade. Wow. So, yeah, it seems like the, the prayer that pro-life people in general, you know, we could, we could all share in crying out to God in would be for these lies to be exposed and for the truth to continue to shine through and, and to remove the power, you know, remove the impact that these lies are having on people. And for these, just mm -hmm. for the, for the, um, the false beliefs to be exposed as, as you know, essentially for the power to be removed from the false beliefs. Uh, and there's so many false beliefs layered upon layers of false beliefs involved with abortion. Um, and, I, and, I, and I feel like for a lot of things, um, connect, you know, saying this is similar to slavery is a dangerous place to go. But when it comes to abortion and comparing it to slavery, I feel like there is like that's a I feel like that's a good comparison to make because mm -hmm. Of, of saying that someone is only three-fifths of, of a person or saying mm -hmm. someone's not a person until, you know, a few weeks later. Like these, these are very similar arguments of dehumanizing a, a population. Uh, what are your thoughts on, well, on slavery and abortion? And it's such a fundamental question that on the Supreme Court itself, as many of our listeners know, are four words right emblazoned across the top of the building, equal justice under law. And that's what these issues, there are certain issues that arise in our history that go right to the core of that, equal justice under law. Who is a person in our society? Whom does the political community welcome, accept, protect? Who is the bearer of constitutional rights the questions about our, our political life don't get more basic than, than that. And so when a whole segment of the population is excluded from equal protection under the law, we seem to keep falling into that mistake, and we did it with the slaves, uh, eventually and painfully, a correction is, is made. A correction constitutionally, we recognize this does not, this policy does not conform to the Constitution, and as you were saying, a correction spiritually, a correction in our in our uh, 
uh, the understanding of our mind and in the attitude of our soul. And the correction is going from an attitude of exclusion to an attitude of inclusion. I quoted earlier that one of the core sentences in Roe v. Wade is, the word person does not include the unborn. And now what we are saying is, yeah, it kind of needs to include the unborn. The court isn't going so far as to say the unborn are persons who must be protected, but it is saying there is no constitutional basis for excluding them from personhood. And that certainly is a major step in the right direction. So the similarity is very simple. Are some people being denied their full personhood? Uh, the answer is clearly yes in, in both of those cases. Yeah, I've been seeing a lot of arguments made for that you know, the reason for abortion is because the child is unwanted. The hmm. you know the situation is making it so that an unwanted person is more likely to do certain things like you know commit crime or something like that. And I feel like the counter argument to that is I, I remember and I don't I don't know the exact quote, but I, I heard that Mother Teresa said something like "Send them to me." And it's yes. almost like a way of saying, you know, if, you know, for the unwanted babies, send them to me, if, you know, and I will, I will take care of them. Can you speak yes. to that quote? Or do you know that quote by chance? Yes, yes. Well, I knew Mother Teresa, and I was able to talk with her many times about abortion. Uh, uh, when I first took over Priest for Life, I went over to Calcutta and spent about a week with her. Uh, and she, she, we, she and I talked about that. You know, and she said she had just given when I visited with her, it was 1994. She had just given the prayer breakfast speech in Washington in February of that year. I was with her in June. And she said uh, in that speech, she said, you know, give the child to, to, to me. Uh, we teach the mother to love so that she doesn't have the abortion. And we help her and her baby uh, to find to find life. The welcome that she is showing really informs the pro-life movement because the bulk of the time and energy of our movement, even though we've been discussing courts and laws, the main focus of the movement is help, help and hope, reaching out and saying to these moms, we will help you. Now, Mother Teresa told me an interesting story because not only had she just given the prayer breakfast speech in February of 94, but then uh, in three months later, President Bill Clinton at the time signed into law a bill that made it a federal crime to blockade, peacefully blockade, the entrance to an abortion facility, as many people were doing in the rescue movement. They were saying, oh, well, we're not going to let the abortionist and the, and the uh, you know, reach this mother and this baby to kill the baby. I explained that law to, to Mother Teresa because not only did it prohibit the blockading, but it said, you know, you can't approach a woman physically and, you know, kind of intimidate her from going in to get this so-called health uh, service. You know what she said to me? She said, Father, if, if we had that law here in India, I would have been thrown in jail many times because I go to the places where they do the abortions, I take the mothers by the arm and I pull them away. That was funny to imagine that because Mother Teresa was very, very small, very short. You imagine her going there, pulling these girls away from the abortion facility. But she said she does that, she did that. And she said, the reason is, you know, we're, 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 we, want, we want to help them. We will take them to our communities. If they can't 
raise the baby, we'll keep the baby ourselves and we'll, we'll make sure that that baby is loved and raised and cared for uh, and, and ultimately uh, adopted and taken care of. So it's the heart and soul of the pro-life movement, isn't it? That we, we go out and we, and we show that love that is unfortunately lacking in the hearts of many because of fear and despair. It's not because of freedom of choice. It's because people feel they have no freedom and no choice. And that's why we have to stand up and say, look, I'm gonna replace your despair with hope. And that hope is shown in the pregnancy centers. It's shown in sidewalk counseling. It's shown when we just speak up and say to people, you're not alone. You don't have to do this. And uh, that's, that's, that's at the heart of the pro-life movement. Wow, that's such a beautiful picture of Mother Teresa, you know, who may be small in stature, but just amazing in her her love and care and reflection, you know, her desire to reflect Jesus to people. Exactly. And pull them from essentially like, yeah, pulling them from the slaughterhouse into yes. safety. Yes. Rescue those, like the book of Proverbs says, rescue those being dragged away to the slaughter. I mean, she was doing that literally and many people of course do that literally when they sidewalk counsel but 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 with mother Teresa, you know so many people praise her for she picked up the sick and the dying from the streets of calcutta well she did that action for which she is so praised even by the secular culture was identical the identical action and spirit with which she fought abortion for which the secular culture would not praise her and in fact, which they, 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 they oppose. But we understand it in the Christian perspective as being the very same thing. The same dynamic by which you would pick up a sick or dying person is the dynamic by which you would go and save that unborn child from, from death. Yeah, and, and I, never, I never met Mother Teresa, but I did, I did spend a lot of time um, talking to Sister Paula. And okay. And I think Sister Paula's contribution to the pro-life world was in asking questions and directing people through, through kind questions and counseling and, and, and really just having this, um, just this way about giving someone direction through helping them discover what's going to be best for them and right. her counseling techniques. We miss, uh, we miss Sister Paula. I uh, was able to, uh, work with her on various things and speak at her conferences. And yeah, she, she, she too was a pioneer, wasn't she? In this whole um, vision and mission of just reaching out, connecting. We have to, the, the, the part of the success of the pro-life effort is in this word connecting. We connect with that mom, like Sister Paula and Mother Teresa, they knew so well how to do. You connect with that mom, you understand what she's thinking and feeling. You let her know that you understand and therefore you win her trust and enable her to take hold of that new hope that'll allow her to say yes to life. Uh, and then we can, but we're connecting too with the baby. And, and, and what so many people don't, don't do in our culture is allow themselves to connect with the humanity of the baby. When we see how the other side treats this issue, I mean, they talk as if this baby doesn't even exist. You know, oh, we stand up. I mean, man, some of the most pro-abortion people in our society, they'll say, we stand up for the vulnerable. We stand up for the helpless. We're in favor of human rights. We're in favor of human dignity for all. And they'll use that phrase, for all, for everybody. And you got to look at these people and say, 
you know, you are, you have such a blind spot. I mean, if you're not just deliberately lying, well, then the only other alternative is that you've got a terrible blind spot. It's making you look like a fool because you're saying, oh, we stand up for the, you know, the most vulnerable. The attitude is correct. You're just forgetting to apply it to the most vulnerable, those babies in the womb. It's like they just completely drop them out of the equation. And that was why, as we go back to what we were saying at the very beginning of our conversation, the way the other side is reacting so frantically, oh, well, they're taking away our rights. You think you're the only person affected by this? Again, they just drop out of the equation from the first moment, the other person who's involved here. Uh, it's, it's, um, it, 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 I always say that, that when we look back on this period of our history, constitutional lawyers will have a lot to say about it, but you know who else is gonna have a lot to say is the psychologists and psychiatrists as to how we so fooled ourselves into pretending that these babies don't even exist. Mm. Yeah, because it's so clear that they do. And people don't just magically show up on their birthday. Right. <laughs> nine, nine months old. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they're already nine months old or, yeah. or so many months old. Right. Um, it's interesting that you said, yeah, you, were, you reflected on Sister Paula as being someone who helped when it comes to networking and networking different groups together. Um, when, when I was trying to process her passing and trying to think about like what part of the body of Christ would she most symbolize? What I, what I was thinking was that she would represent like the veins in the body because uh. she was connecting different people together. And I felt like that was, you know, in the body, you know, sometimes I think people are the, you know, the feet or the hands, but I think sister Paula was the veins because she was very much connecting and starting things and helping connect you know, the right people with other people and really pro providing education to people and direction and all and using those questions as guiding as a as a kind intellectual way of directing education to people who needed it, whether it was the pro life teams, or, or to a client who is looking, looking for abortion, and she would use questions to guide that person into the right path. And yeah, so, yeah, I like that analogy. Yeah, she very much was that. She very much played that role. And she gave people an opportunity to do something for the movement. You know, the Volunteers for Life was uh, mm -hmm. my favorite aspects of, of her work. And uh, uh, give people a chance to help. Show people that there's always something they can do to help, no matter what their background is, no matter how young, how old, what their professional back skills are. The movement needs everybody. And she she really uh, believed that. So there was a, um, I feel like the opposition is trying to label the pro-life people um, as terrorists. I've heard that word a couple of times in some videos mm -hmm. recently. And, or they're, they're, they're throwing a lot of labels at us, as, you know, marking us as dangerous or talking about like these bombings that took place. So I don't know much about them, but apparently in the eighties or well before I was, aware of much going on in this world, but the pro-life yes. world. Um, and, and it just feels like the pro-life, you know, from what I know of the pro-life world is that it's full of care, um, Jesus loving people who are, are providing, you know, who are kind, loving, they're sacrificing their time and energy. Um, and th th these labels 
you know, I feel like they're damaging, but they're not, I don't think like, I don't feel like they're full of truth. I don't feel like they should stick. Um, and I feel right. like they're um, abusive. Well, this is how the enemy always tries to abuse. Uh, they to make up, just lie about your opponent, try to smear them. It's exactly what they did to Jesus himself. Uh, it's, it's what they do to their political enemies. It's what they do to their enemies in the culture wars. And we, it's our living example that disproves this uh, because you just look at, psychiatrists have a, a, a saying, believe behavior. So if somebody is drinking vigorously from a water fountain and then in between gulps, they turn around to you and say, I'm not thirsty, I'm not thirsty. And then they go back to drinking. You know, what are you gonna believe? The words or the behavior. And you look at the pro-life movement, we're the ones uh, running the pregnancy centers, which now outnumber the abortion facilities by almost four to one. And we're the ones that are, that are offering uh, the actual help, uh, compassionate help, uh, both before and after abortion. Uh, so to call us judgmental, to call us violent, I mean, the pro-life movement is the largest, peaceful, most peaceful movement in American history. And uh, history vindicates us. Any kind of person of goodwill, any kind of intellectual honesty vindicates us. And we just need to continue showing forth who we are in word and example and have that trust that that history is the great vindicator. Yeah. And if only, you know, with some of the some of the lies that the uh, the, the abortion clinics say, like, for example, um, with a lie that abortion is only three percent of what they do. Um, so if by chance there's a, you know, an abortion clinic or a Planned Parenthood in Texas, and abortion is only 3% of what they do, you know, why would they close with abortion becoming illegal? I mean, why yeah. wouldn't they just do the 97% that they already, you know, but obviously, you know, the, the issue is that, you know, abortion is the main thing that they do. That's their and, main priority. And they yes. just try and de-emphasize it. They try and, they try and, you know, I don't know. It just, it just feels very sleazy the way they try and make it. So it's small, but yet it's big and it's small and they, they go back and forth flip-flopping on how important it is to them. And it's always like, you know, essentially, I feel like they're always trying to like finagle their way out of out of a real conversation or debate and trying to just throw mud at the other side, trying well, to like reflect and deflect any kind of responsibility. And they're, they're not being honest about what, what abortion is. I mean, uh, you know, if you if you only kill three percent of the people you meet in your life, but it's, it's, it's like you're really going to justify that. Oh, yeah. Like, I only kill 3% of the people I meet in my life. Yeah, you know, I make great food, but it's only 3% poison. Yeah, I mean, if you do it once, that disqualifies you. That's it. Yeah. You, don't, you don't merit any kind of uh, of support if, if, you're, if you're not repenting of what you're doing. So it's, uh, no, it's a, it's a completely bogus kind of claim, and it's ridiculous. And, uh, you know, they got to start by being honest. You know, what is an abortion? And, you know, why would you want to do even a single one of them? Um, it, it, it's just, uh, it, it just goes to show how shallow they are. Yeah. So in California, there was, uh, they've been passing a lot of laws recently that are very pro-abortion, mostly financial laws to try and raise lots of money. But one of the laws that seems to be the shocker law uh, would be the one that says they can um, going beyond partial birth and now going into what's called the phrase perinatal, which according to California law is up to 28 days. Mm -hmm. But some people define perinatal as being up to one year uh, after birth, but the California law um, seems to lean closer to 28 days. 
Mm-hmm. Um, why? Yeah, this is um, this is uh, you know I don't. This is a. You know, what are your thoughts on this new space? This new attack? This what? what yes. the, I don't even have to call this. Well, think about the reasons that they say abortion should be allowed. I'm too young. Okay, so if the baby is born, are you still too young? I don't have enough money to raise the baby. So the baby gets born, you get through the pregnancy, the baby gets born. Do you still not have enough money? I have too many children already and I don't have the support of a, of a father, of a husband. Baby gets born, do you still have too many children? Now you have even more and you still don't have the support. So in other words, if those reasons that they give would justify killing the baby in the womb, How do they not justify killing the baby once the baby's born? Now, Peter Singer is an ethicist whose ethics aren't so great, but he is a well-known, you know, influential ethicist. And he said this, there's only two consistent positions that you can have in regard to all this. One, either oppose abortion or endorse infanticide. And you think about his reasoning, he said, because the physical act of birth cannot be so morally significant to change the the moral status of this being from a a non-person to a person. Why would just this journey through the birth canal make such a difference? He said, if in fact abortion is justified, infanticide is justified too. Mm -hmm. Now, the been writing about this, there are articles in, in, in prominent medical journals defending post-birth abortion. Uh, and again, it's very simply, you know, choice over life. If choice predominates, because with the development of science over these recent decades, it's harder and harder for the other side to say, well, I justify abortion because that's not a human being. When science makes it more and more clear, well, that is a human being, then if you're going to consider, if you're going to continue justifying abortion, you have to justify the killing of a little human being. Well, if you succeed in doing that, you prove too much because now you justified infanticide. And some of them are simply being honest enough to accept that conclusion. They're saying, you know what? Yeah, I am justifying the killing of a little baby and I am justifying infanticide. And that's why we see laws like this in California. And that's why we also see the Democrats nationally have failed to support a law that, a a bill that's been introduced in Congress. I mean, it's sitting there now waiting for their support that would increase protections for babies who are born, who survived an attempted abortion. Now, sometimes that happens, especially with these late-term abortions, they're essentially deliveries. And sometimes that baby survives. So what do you do then? You have a baby outside the mother, it's no longer an unborn, Struggling to survive, do you intervene and give that baby medical help? Try to help the child survive? And this law would, would, would strengthen those protections. There are some protections, but they're not adequate. Democrats don't want to have anything to do with that bill. And it's like, wait a second, this is more than abortion. This is an outright lack of respect for human life in its earliest stages. Uh, so yeah, we're going to see and, and we're going to see this more and more. Hmm. And yeah, some of some of the other one of one of the other bills that was passed in California. So I'm I'm in Arizona, right between Texas and California. 
Okay. And 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 then so in Texas, um, well, let me, let me go. Let me, so in in California, there's a bill that was passed that says if a if an abortion doctor in Texas has a house or a boat in California, that their assets can be protected. And the Texan, you know, if they do something illegal in Texas, those assets are protected in California. Mm. And, and so this feels, you know, just the, you know, it, it feels like the California laws are being designed to harbor illegal activity that's illegal in Texas, but maybe not, it's not illegal in California, but it's illegal in Texas. And they're creating ways of like harboring you know, someone that does something illegal in, in, in one state. Yeah. And so the, I'm trying to wrap my head around, like, what is that? It, it just feels very, um, you know, how can we how can we remain the United States when we have one state who is literally trying to create laws that will protect an illegal activity in another state, which is hard. Yeah. It's hard to sometimes, like, I'm still trying to wrap my head around, like, what does that really mean? And what does that look like for our country as a whole? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a very good question because it brings up two, two sets of issues. One, like what's going on morally with that? And it shows this fanatical obsession with abortion. They don't want to do a single thing to uh, stop a single abortion uh, or discourage it. They want to protect these baby killers. And these people are so all in for the abortion industry, they'll, they'll, they'll create laws like this. Um, but you said, uh, uh, how can we remain the United States of America? Because this is now that the, 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 if the court is going to rule uh, to, to reverse Roe v. Wade. So as we were discussing before, this is going to give the states freedom to do what Texas did and also freedom to do what California did. But that's how we remain the United States. In other words, that there are 50 state governments and they indeed have a certain degree of autonomy because Texas is not California. Uh, Alabama is not Illinois. The people are different and their values are different and are, there, there need to be certain common values uniting all of us, but the values and the mores and the, and the cultures and the beliefs and the political persuasions are so different from state to state that if you're going to have the union survive, if you're going to continue to be the United States, you've got to have two things. Number one, you've got to have some commonality uniting everybody, but you've also got to have enough leeway for diversity between the states. Now, I'm not saying it's okay for a state to kill the unborn children. I'm saying that the existence of the independent legislatures and the ability to hash out these controversial issues on a state level, I believe what we have to do is work towards the consensus of saying no abortion anywhere. But while we don't have that consensus, for the country to impose, for the court to impose a constitutional right to abortion, it works against. See, now it creates this, now it creates this this phenomenon where the people in California are gonna try to influence what's going on in Texas through laws like this and, and encourage, encourage illegal behavior. So it is a, an issue of how do we be the United States of America? Well, you know, you let the states decide a lot of questions. That's what you do. And you allow that diversity um, without compromising on principle 
you allow the diversity constitutionally to work itself out. Uh, the other side doesn't understand this and they don't want it. Yeah, and it's just, um, and I do think it feels like, well, I'm hoping that we'll have less um, rioting when Roe versus Wade is actually um, passed because yeah. people in California, you know, you know, it, hopefully there'll be less rioting in California because they are on the same page. And, and hopefully there'll be less rioting in Texas, or probably won't be any rioting in Texas because they'll be on the same page. And so, whereas like when, when there was something going on at the national level, it seemed like there was lots of rioting and the, the, you know, the mob-like mentality, but in, yeah. really in the, I think in the end, the opposition is, they're pretty, um, they seem to just want to lash out and cause damage when they, when they don't get their way. It's sort of like, Right, just like a, a young child having a a, a, tantr a tantrum. It doesn't make it doesn't, it's it not is. logical. It doesn't always right. align. It, it's not like they've thought about it and they've they've, they've calmed themselves down when they didn't right. get their way. But uh, it'd be really nice if there was less, um, yeah, less fires, less um, less attacks when they don't get their way. Yeah, exactly. We need we need. Uh... A maturity to uh, again, they can still engage the process. I, I'm, I'm saying, say to them during these days, make your case. You know, the court's not taking away your opportunity to make your case to to persuade your fellow citizens, persuade your elected officials to keep abortion legal. The court would still be giving them the opportunity to do that. We don't see that as right, but you still have. What are you getting so mad about? Make your case. See, but they don't have a persuasive case. And this is why this goes back again to what I was saying before. If the court just handed them abortion on demand on a silver platter like they did in Roe v. Wade, they didn't have to make the case. They just hid behind the judge. Oh, the court said this, the court said that. Now you have to make your case and persuade the lawmakers to say it and to do it. It's going to be harder for them. Yeah. And, and I'm hoping that we can have more civil discourse with people with different opinions. Can they, we can talk about things in a civil way that's friendly. Yep. We can use intelligence and logic and, and good reasons to, to, and to, and to be heard for both, you know, for people who don't agree to hear each other, possibly right. while, you know, eating lunch together and having a conversation about something that's difficult and divisive, but yet doing it in a way that's civil and friendly in a way that we can try and influence each other for the better. And, and I think this is one of the ways that Roe has poisoned our civil discourse, because when you think about it, not only did it short circuit the process by taking it away from the lawmakers, but it also short circuited the process just in these common conversations between citizens, because in the courts and in, in the legislatures, as soon as the court said, oh, it's a constitutional right, now the legislators couldn't legislate on it anymore. I think a similar thing happens in just ordinary conversation between American citizens, because somebody says, hey, well, you know, what do you think about abortion? I, I don't think it's right. Can we have a conversation about this? If the other person just then comes down and says, oh, it's a constitutional right. You know, it's like that short circuits the conversation, just like it short circuits the legislative debate. And that's not good for anybody. What you're advocating would come more from a position of saying, all right, let's not, let's not just, oh, this constitutional right. Let's truly do what um, the court took away from us, and that is weigh the weigh and balance the different interests that are involved, and why are we saying this is good? Why are we saying that's bad? And let's hear each other out, because we believe on the pro-life side, of course, 
that we have the more persuasive case. So if people give us a chance to be heard, that's why we believe we'll come out the right way. Yeah. And, and I think with, in the post-Roe world, we're going to have several states on both sides of the, of the aisle. And I think we're going to end up getting a lot of good conversations and, and, and some yes. states will, will fall on one side or the other. And then some states are going to be in the middle and we're going to have a lot of opportunities for people to talk and have good conversations and, and hopefully be persuasive with their, with their ideas and logic and the, and essentially to share, you know, reasons and good ideas with one another in order to try and um, compete in the world of ideas more so than in just trying to yell someone down or trying to set something on fire to try and influence someone to be quiet. Well, you know, to ask certain basic honest questions, what does the science say about the unborn child? What do embryologists uh, say about when human life begins? These are just questions. What impact, the other side is always talking about uh, women's health, what impact has abortion had over these 50 years on women's health. There's plenty of studies. Um, if you want to try to refute the studies, go ahead. But let's start with the question, what do the studies say? Not what do medical associations say, because associations can end up taking political position. Mm -hmm. What do the studies themselves say? I mean, these are like basic starting point questions that should be able to lead to the kind of rational discussion that you're that you're talking about. And again, they have to take place between individuals on a one-to-one -one basis, and then also in the legislatures so that the proper laws can be made. Well, Father Frank, I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate your passion for the unborn and for people in general, or for all people. Thank you. Um, Thank would you, you. Would you um, uh, say a prayer as we wrap up this podcast for sure. just for where God leads you to pray? Yes, absolutely. So Lord, we pray for all our listeners and, and, and viewers and all those that are uh, wrestling with this issue. Uh, we pray for our lawmakers across the nation on the state and federal level. We pray for the justices of the Supreme Court and their clerks. We pray for the American people. We pray for our nation. Lord, we pray for all women uh, right now uh, tempted to have an abortion, uh, for all pregnancy counselors, we pray for all those who have had abortions, that they may find healing and peace. We pray, Lord God, for all your people. Lead us out of the shadow of death and the culture of death. Lead us, Lord, to your kingdom of life. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Frank. Thank all you right. So much. My pleasure. Shepherd, I shall not be in want. I shall not be long. He makes me lie down in green. He leads me by quiet blue. Yeah, the walk through.
direction and guidance are comforting me Lead me in righteous pathways for your name's sake.